Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Habits and Hustle podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Cohen, and I'm so excited to be creating this alongside the Habit Nest team. It's a podcast where I interview entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and overall extraordinary people who share their insight and what it takes to be successful, what their habits and rituals are, and the one thing they think made a difference in their success. I want to give people practical and actionable information where they can implement into their own lives. I love our debut episode with Jordan Harbinger. Jordan is obsessed with adding value to others and is a master at social engineering. We walk through what his secret sauce is to having one of the most downloaded podcasts of 2018, the one habit he does daily, and how he works with special agents and intelligent officers. And of course, a hilarious story about how he uses a blow-up doll to break into a warehouse. Without further ado, here is Jordan Harbinger. So I am so excited because I have Jordan Harbinger on this podcast today, who is um, pretty much the king of all podcasts. All of them. Well, really, well, he, you are. We'll see. Um, Jordan got basically most down most downloaded podcast of 2018 for Apple and has like a kajillion downloads a month. Like how many downloads do you actually have a month? Four and a half million, give or take. Yeah. Downloads per month. Yeah. Not that, not that anyone's paying attention. (laughs) No one's paying attention, right? No, not at all. So I'm like super excited. Honestly, I'm really happy to have you here. I feel really honored because this is obviously a new thing for me and I want to use you as kind of a mentor anyway, because you've obviously crushed it in this space. So. It only took 12 years. Yeah, this is the, this <laughs> this month is the 12 year anniversary of me doing podcasts. Oh wow. Of me having a show. Yeah. So how long did you think it's kind of took you of those 12 years to hone it? Because mm. obviously you have a nice formula working and it's Yeah, good question. I I remember 7 years ago I interviewed an author. Or sorry, oh, wow. but no, not 7 years ago. Five years ago, my seven-year anniversary, wow. I interviewed this author, Robert Greene. He was one of my favorite authors, still is. Right. And after the interview, he's like, oh, this is really good. I do a lot of media, and this is like one of my favorite interviews. And I was like, what? Really? That's incredible. And I even said that to him. I was like, that means so much. Wow. And then I remember after, after that, I got all new equipment, and I, I was like, I got to start taking this even more seriously. I really want to get into this. And then I thought, I'm starting to really get the hang of interviewing people seven years in. So now it's five years from then. And this year I'm like, all right, I got all these ideas. I'm starting to really hammer down some of these things that I'm doing. I want to take things to the next level, do more on camera, really do more with prep, do a little bit of a format change, all that stuff. So I still go through these phases where I'm like, this is, I'm really starting to get a handle on this. And I even have goals of things that I want to stop doing, things that I want to start doing in interviews and on shows. So I, I think anybody who's like, yeah, I'm really good at this is just kind of has their head in their butt for that reason. Wow. No, you know? I mean, I have to tell, I mean, the reality is like, obviously you're doing something or you're, you must be a perfectionist because, and or very like hard on yourself because yeah. you must be, because like your prep, like honestly, like to even get on your show, we're friends, mm-hmm. right? And obviously I want to be on your podcast and I'm hoping to be on that podcast. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. You know? I, I mean, exactly. Well, TBD. like your, your, <laughs> yeah. Like your producer was like, um, if we don't get this prep work done yeah. by so-and-so, uh, we're going to have to postpone and reschedule the yeah. podcast, which by the way has happened. Yeah, that's happened. Yeah. Cause I hired my producer so that 
producer Jason's job, in part, yeah. is to be the, the jerk that I can't be. Well, you could be, actually, too, because both of you have actually said that to me. Um, Fine. Yeah, but, but maybe you're more uncomfortable with I'm it. I'm less comfortable <laughs> yes. with it. He, there's you a part more of, awkward about it. There's a part of Jason that just relishes being like, you're not good enough to yeah. be on the show. Oh, so. yeah. And like, let me just say, it's not just me, because I've actually um, recommended two of my fr- one of my friends to you who is like a superstar, like a superstar athlete, all-star MLB player, all-star this, also, And like, he crushed that prep. By the way, the prep is like 100 pages. <laughs> and it's like, goes back to when you were an embryo all the way to where you are yeah. today with like, you know, it like basically can rip you apart. You need to have like a weekend to set aside to even do the prep work for your show. And he did. And he, I thought it looked great. And then you guys were like, yeah. I mean, it just had a lot of pictures in it. At the end <laughs> no, of the, that's not. what made it look good. At the oh end of the God. day, the, yeah, I, like I'll spend 10 hours prepping for a show easily. And for a show like with Robert Greene, that I think I spent 20 to 30 hours on that prep for that interview. That's it. Well, and it was a good, it, I mean, by the way, I did hear that interview. It was actually very good. Thank you. I mean, you are, to, with all jokes aside, you are like a step above most people. I mean, you really do like, you take it seriously. I think a lot of people, especially now, people are like, yeah, I'm just going to do a podcast. And they sure. just throw shit at, like, you know, at the wall. But you do legitimately take it seriously. You put a lot of effort, a lot of work into it. And it shows because... Yeah, like I wouldn't have my phone ring around or Yeah, my show. exactly. Or beeping like that. Yeah, that would never time. happen. Yeah. No, that would never happen. Go ahead and... I know. No, no, I'm not going to check. I'm not going to make phone calls, but I'm just going to turn it off. That's a good move. Is that okay? I like that. Is that good? Okay. Yeah, see, this is not that hard. Listen, I have a lot to learn from you. This has only been like, what, two weeks in or three weeks in? So sure. the fact that you're even like humoring me to be here... It's week four where they tell you to turn your phone on silent. <laughs> Exactly. So that's why I have you here. That's why you're my mentor. You're welcome. How yeah. else would I have known that? No. I mean, really. It's not like, yeah. Uh, you know, go ahead. Give no, me a I, shot, I, shot, shot. No, go it's ahead. okay. It's okay. It's too low-hanging fruit. Are you sure? Okay. Yes. So, yeah, I, I am hard on myself, which is why I'm hard on Other potential people. guests. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not purposely, there's not like this sort of smug, you can't be on the show, you're not good enough. Like, that's, that's kind that's of a... That's, is that how you felt? <laughs> yeah, I did. There, I think a lot of people felt that a way. A lot of people do feel that way. But he, here's the thing. If people aren't going to do the work to even fill out like a document that gives us somewhere to start, it's just not going to work. It's a good screen because if someone's going to come and mail it in while they're in front of the mic, mm-hmm. I want to find that out before we get here. Right. And the way that I find that out is I go, here's five relatively simple questions that show you have clear thinking about what you want to present. And if people can't do that or won't do that or if they're like too arrogant to do that, then it's a good screen. It shows me that I made the right decision in not having them on the show in the right, first that's place. That's valid. I mean, not five. There's like more like 55 questions. Yeah, but, you it's, know, it's a few pages long. <laughs> it's close, close enough. But no, I think that's important. And mm-hmm. I think it's also your interview does show that because it is, you you get nuggets and information that maybe other, otherwise wouldn't be known, of right? Course. Yeah, most guests that, are, the goal for the show often with an interview is to have the guest say during or at least after the interview, wow, I've never had to think about this. I've never had to answer this. I've never thought about these concepts that I teach together. And the reason is I know that I have to know the guest content about as well as they do. I don't have to be as much of a detailed expert on the subject, but I have to know it about as well as they do. Because, and I think it was Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's sort of partner Mm -hmm. uh, in crime, he said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, you have no business even having an opinion until you can phrase or frame your counterpoints 
principles at least as well as they can. And so essentially, who am I to sit here and try to teach the audience something that I didn't bother researching myself? Because why? I'm sitting in front of you? Like that's the, Now, the bar is so low to enter the podcast and interview game, you're no longer necessary. You are an absolute commodity if you're not putting in as much work as the guest. Nobody needs me to sit here and be like, so tell me about yourself. Anyone, literally anyone can do that. The only thing that sets shows like ours apart is going to be the amount of work that goes into preparing for that guest so that I can ask them questions that are actually meaningful. Nobody needs me to be like, so I turned on the camera and the microphone and I'm sitting here, so tell me about your new book. That's useless. That's 1980s radio format that works for a 15-minute spot. It doesn't work for an hour-long in-depth interview. If you do that, you're just wasting the audience's time. And so a concept that I bring in from my days as an attorney is I have to be an advocate for the audience. Every minute of their time is something that I have to earn because they have a choice now. It's not like Larry King's on, okay, well, nothing else is on. I guess we're going to watch this. So you can get away with being like, why did you do that? Fine. But now... Now you have to know something that nobody else does. The way you get that is by spending time doing it. Unless you're a comedian and you're really a cut above funny, if you're Conan O'Brien, you can get in front of somebody. But here's what, here's what people don't realize. I bet you that, and I don't, I don't bet, I know that Conan, Dave Letterman, all those guys, they spend hours, hours and hours and hours preparing for those little 10-minute celebrity little plugs And I know, I remember reading this about Dave Letterman, because I I study interviewers. I spend a few hours every single month studying other interviewers, and I hire whoever I can. You know, I have CNN anchors that are, like, coaching me that don't really do that. And I'm like, I need to learn from you because you're doing this. And they're like, oh, crap, okay. So I'll pay that guy, like, eight grand for two hours of time, and it's the guy that you see on night, you know, at night on CNN. And I'm like, I want to find out how you do this because I want to learn this specific skill set. Because if you're not doing that, you're not really earning the audience's time. You're just putting yourself in this position of privilege because you're the guy with the camera in front of you. But now any a-hole can buy a camera. Anybody can rent my man over here who's running this for you and be like, oh, I have a podcast now. So effing what? Who cares? What do you bring to the table? The answer is nothing if you're not putting work into it. And David Letterman used to watch his show every single night after it ended and watch the whole thing and just kind of like beat himself up. And oh, he d- that show was on every night for years. Oh, absolutely. I think the, the best in anything is because they practice more than anybody else. Right. And they hone their skills more than anybody else. And people don't really understand or know that what goes on behind the scenes. Like people who are successful typically are like the Kobe O'Brien. I mean, yeah. it's a perfect example. Like the amount of hours he practiced more than anybody else uh, is, is that's why he is who he is. I yeah. mean, like anything. And that, that, you can parlay that into any industry and anything. But I think it's it's true, and cream does rise to the top. That's why your numbers are what your numbers are, and your interviews are that caliber compared to others. You're right, and the reality is, like anything, you can have a lot of people, like now podcasts, everyone and their dog is doing a podcast, yeah. you know? Yeah. But only a very small, small, small percentage or 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 quality, and it's 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 really up to you as the podcaster to kind of put the best content on, and then hope that people kind of will eventually find it and gravitate to it, exactly. right? Yeah, and the reason I have guests go through a certain prep funnel, and is because I'm spending ten times more time doing the same amount of prep for that same guest. I never just get the prep from the guest and go like, "All right, cool, let's do a show." I read this for five seconds, like. 
the what you're filling out is 10% of the equation. And then I go and read your three books and then I take notes on right. those and I plug that into the show outline. So me and my producer will have a meeting about that. Then we prepare for that that I way. I time to do more than one podcast a year. I mean, I, mean, I really. just work a lot. Do you not go to sleep ever? Or do you basically... I like... get up really early and I don't waste time watching television and stuff like that. So yeah. what time do you wake up? 5 to 6 a.m. depending. Yeah. So what's, what's your routine, your daily routine? You Oof. wake up? I get up around five or six. Okay. Uh, in the morning, I usually read audiobooks because I'm like in bed and it's really comfy and everyone's like, oh, do you get up and work out? Hell no. No. <laughs> no, I don't do that. Everybody who has a morning routine where they get up and they go yeah. run a ma half marathon, good for you. That's not what I do. Um, you could run though and listen to an audiobook. You could you could be multitasking. I don't want to do that. No. Oh, okay. No, no. I like to be in my bed. That's my multitasking. Oh, okay. That's Trying to get awake and read. So I'll read, it's usually an audiobook, okay. and then I'm taking notes as well. And then I'll read for a while until I'm kind of awake and I want to move around. I might go through my social media where I engage with the show fans. Mm -hmm. And then I get up, make some coffee or whatever, and I get straight into work, whatever that might you be. You were working today. already for two hours, it sounds. Kind of, yeah. But I'm like, reading is not that hard, right? It's sort of it's passive, even though I'm taking notes. But you're still kind of researching. That's, yeah. re that's like you're still working. So I am. Technically, you're working. If you go to bed at what time, you said? Nine. Okay. So you sleep for about, what, seven hours seven or so? Seven to eight hours, yeah. And the rest is basically working. How many podcasts do you do? Do you tape a, a multitude of them in a, a week and then... Yeah, yeah, it depends. Like here in LA, I'll do like five and then I'll go to New York and I'll do like 10 in five days. But wow. then I come back. Yeah, but I have to prep all those beforehand. Right, so how, that's what I'm saying. That's a lot of... Yeah. work it's just like, to even get to one podcast sure yeah it is and it's worth it because that, that's the thing it back when people just had tv shows like if i was on cnn and i was 60 years old i would do no prep work i and i know i see those guys wow, yeah. doing the amount of prep work most yeah. of them do none and it's fine they're already in this position where people are watching them through habit they're on this really large platform. They don't feel like they have to earn your attention anymore. But those guys are going to retire in five or six years. Oh, absolutely. Right? If not less. Well, think about it. Because now, because you do a lot of podcasts, like the top podcasts you'll do, right? Because that's what people do. Like, you go on this podcast, I'll go on your podcast. People just like, kind of like just visit each other's podcasts to kind of grow their yeah. their viewership. That's sure. kind of what people do, right? So you've gone on the top, a lot of the top podcasts. You tell me, has anybody ever given you the same type of prep that you've given them? Uh, maybe once. Yeah, but, maybe once. And do you give those people prep, even though you kind of know them already, you have all that, they have a, they have a, you know, they're kind of your friends already, you still give them the prep? It depends. If they've already got really clear-cut content, then I don't need it. Oh, okay. It depends on if I need it. it. It has to, it's a matter of raising the bar. If you're not raising the bar, then you're kind of underneath someone else's bar. Right. So, right. so what I'm doing is instead of being like, oh, I'm going to produce more content than everyone else, or I'm going to be more energetic than everyone else or be funnier than everyone else. My competitive uh -oh. advantage <laughs> is outworking people. Right. And, and the way that I do that is I just say, fine, I'm going to make the interview quality higher so that when some other schmo comes out with like an interview podcast, I don't know, for example, uh, <laughs> but no, like if some other schmo's like, oh, I'm going to interview people. Are you calling people. me a schmo? No, it's yeah, just a hypothetical. It like to be. It's just I a hypothetical. hypothetical. But if, if someone comes out with another interview podcast, then right. I can be like, fine, I don't have to worry about that. Right. I can go, well, great. They're not going to outwork me on this. They're right. not. And so you rest that there's like this little, little tiny film that's like your talent. Anything above that is going to be work ethic. 
And then there's going to be a component of that that's like network connections, who you know, your ability to book big guests, things like that. I think all of it's very important, to be honest with it you. It is. I mean, you said the content is number one, right? And being yeah. really good at your craft and like honing your skills, for sure. But then it also comes with the fact that you have to be able to like, be able to connect to people and be able to network really well to get the people on that are interesting enough for you to even interview. Sure. Which brings me a good segue into how you started. Because I guess why you're like a double threat Kind of a double threat because you used to coach men, right? Right. For self confidence, and then it kind of ricocheted into being like social networking. Yeah. And well, it was like, and I mean, it was like into that pickup crap before that became all creepy AF. Right. Right. I don't right. Know if we, what we could say. You can say whatever the hell you want. Yeah. I mean, when I first started, I was an attorney on Wall Street, and I was in law school, and I thought I was going to get fired because I thought, oh my god, they're going to realize I'm I'm not not smart enough to be this Wall Street attorney. So I need to work from home because if I'm in the office, they're going to be like, this guy's such a schmo, like what an idiot. You but love the word schmo. I know. I just realized I overused <laughs> it. And I, so I tried to cover it that's, with that. And thanks okay. for highlighting it. No, you're welcome. You called me a schmo. So it's I true. figured you deserve it. It's true. Right? I do. Yeah. Damn. And so when I decided that I was going to work from home, I thought I need to figure out the magic formula. So there's this partner named Dave. Dave was never in the office, but he was one of the youngest partners. And I thought, if I can figure out what he did to work from home, I can sort of copy that career path. This is called imposter syndrome, by the way. When you feel like you're the only one who doesn't belong in a certain right, right, place right. Yeah. and you're going to get fired or, or found out. So Dave took me out for coffee and I was like, hey, do you work from home all the time? Like, how does that work? You know, trying to nudge him on this. And he's like, no, I, I actually develop relationships with our clients that's why i'm never in the office and he's like i don't worry about getting my billable hourly bonus because even if i don't hit 2000 billable hours i'm bringing in a deal every quarter every few months so i get a bonus for that it far outweighs the office work that i'm doing so i don't my my advantage basically he was worth more outside the firm right than he generating was business than he was inside the firm you know crafting documents right. so i thought wait a minute what the hell i need that because my competitive advantage when I was a kid, when I was in high school, was like coast through the, through the geometry exam or whatever, figure it out on the test, no big deal, get a B plus, good enough. Then when I got to college, everybody was pretty smart, couldn't do that anymore, but everybody's like, yeah, I'm going to drink five days a week, wake up at 11.30 a.m. And I was like, hey, if I just do my homework and show up to class, I'm going to win this too. Right. So That's I could- competitive advantage right there. It, it was. Yeah. So I, I switched my competitive advantage from being naturally maybe a- B minus B plus student, which is better than a C student, to being able to outwork everyone. But then you get to Wall Street and everyone's always outworking everyone and really smart. Absolutely. And I was like, crap, I'm going to get fired. I don't have a clear cut competitive advantage anymore. And what Dave showed me was the network that people you surround yourself with, that's your competitive advantage. And so I took that skill set and went to all my law friends at law school over at Michigan. And I was like, you guys need to learn this. This is like this key that's going to get us ahead of the game. And all these law partners were like, well, yeah, if you can bring in deals, you'll be able to write your own ticket. It's going to be great for you. That or being a clerk for a federal freaking judge or right. something like that, which was not not in my... That was on your cards? Not well? in the cards no. for, for yours truly. <laughs> so I started working on that. And all my friends were like, hey, this is really interesting. And I started a podcast with a friend of mine based on these skills. And this is in 2006. And people were like, eh, whatever. And then we found out that these same networking skills could be used to meet women because it was all the same stuff. Know everyone, 
greet people by name, be charismatic, nonverbal communication on lock, all that stuff. So it kind of sounds like, you know, uh, the, the, you know, to win friends and influence people. Totally. That's it basically was. like the book. And I started with those Dale Carnegie classes. Yeah, Dale Carnegie. It sounds like you're like a, that's what you were kind of preaching. It was. And the pro, but here's the problem. I take a Dale Carnegie class and I'd be like, okay, how do I generate these really strong connections and network? And so some guy at the, in a sweater vest at the YMCA is like, remember that their kids like tennis. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, have a firm handshake and look him in the eye. And I'm like, great, got it. What's the real nuanced thing here? Because if somebody doesn't like you, it's not because you didn't have a firm handshake and didn't, you didn't look him in the eye. There's some other nuanced thing that the guy in the like Argyle print, whatever, at the if this class is not telling you because he doesn't know it's too nuanced he doesn't have the time to spend with you and frankly he doesn't have that sauce right. either he's teaching a bunch of people who like can't stand in front of a room without freaking out how to give a public speech right right so i'm like okay there's more to the story here i got to figure this out and so i started diving into psychology practical application things like that and i started meeting everybody from really high-end, super, super powerful salesmen who really had a knack for this to spies, KGB agents that were retired, How? people who How really, mean those people? I was putting the word out that I was teaching this stuff and people would write in and be like, hey, my uncle knows a lot about this. And I'd be like, great, what does he do? Oh, he was the top car salesman for the tri-state area for like five years straight. And I'd be like, okay, can I call him? And they'd be like, all right. So I'd call this guy and he'd be like, sure, come on in and I'll show you what I'm talking about. And I would shadow this guy for a while. And I'd be like, holy cow, this guy gets it. He'd say something like, yeah, you see this? You see how he uh, he wears this watch on his uh, left hand? That means that he's right-handed, but you know, it, it's a it's a fancy watch if you notice that. And they, I get all these like nuanced little tidbits Right, so you're basically, like 12 years ago, when you started your first podcast, yeah. two things. Number one, you were, you kind of had like the, the baseline of what, like the Dale Carnegie, Carnegie baseline of what you needed to do. Yeah. But then you kind of used that podcast as a way to get introduced to people of 100%. all walks of life who can teach you something about that craft. That was the original purpose of the yeah. show. I was like, if I have this show, yeah. which and I started the show because people kept asking me nonverbal and body language questions over and over and over. And I was burning them to CDs, these conversations I was having wow. and handing them out at the bar and being like, uh, we're talking about upright, positive, open, nonverbal communication. People were like, wait, what's that all about? I'm like, oh God, I just spent three hours talking about this on Monday. So I started burning those conversations to CDs and being like, listen to this, come back next week and ask questions. You have those still? Uh, No. But well, what happened was people would go, hey, I gave it to my roommate. Do you have another one? Hey, I gave that to my cousin. Hey, my brother borrowed that and won't give it back. And I was like, I need to put these somewhere where anyone can get them. Because people were like, hey, can you mail this to my aunt yeah. in, in New Jersey? Because my cousin's... And I'm like, no. So I started selling them for like five bucks and then 20 bucks. And I was like, this is a nice little income stream. But I was, nice spending, I was spending hours burning the same... CD. Over and over again. So my friend goes, hey, there's this new thing called podcasting. We can put an MP3 file online and just tell people how to download it. So we did that. That was the beginning of the show. Are you kidding? So you were kind of very entrepreneurial. You were selling these. Oh, yeah. Four or five bucks. Did you make a lot of, did you sell a lot of them? I, uh, yeah. Once we start, once we raised the price to like 20 bucks, we made a few thousand bucks. But yeah. then when were you teaching these classes? Like you were also teaching guys just how to be more self-confident. Like is that before yeah. this or in the that, intro? That was... That was around, we started the show first and then people were like, oh. hey, 
Can you, I remember one of our first clients was this mortgage banker from California. I lived in Michigan, remember? So he goes, I want you to train my whole sales team. And I'm like, I'm not a real coach. And he goes, (laughs) "Uh, that's funny. I hired all these real coaches. They're full of crap. They're like these life coach (laughs) D-bags who wrote like a PDF ebook and they don't know anything. Right. You already know this stuff. And I was like, well, not really. And he's like, no, I make my sales team listen to your show come in and teach a digested version of the stuff that's on the show and I'll give you like five grand. And I, for a student, I was like blown away. Yeah. So we teach one class and he goes, let me teach you something. You need to triple your price, but I'm not paying you triple, but you need to triple your price. So I was like, all right, fine. I did that. And then we had, I, we started talking about that. We had a guy that said he was a street magician and he goes, I've been using your stuff to make tons, tons of money on the street. These, these oh. body language and sort of sales tactics that were essentially applied to people. Right. And he goes, can I come and, and learn this from you in person? Because we were phone coaching him after a while for like a hundred bucks an hour. Wow. And so I made a bunch of money phone coaching. And then I said, I don't have a class. I'm a lawyer on Wall Street at this point and, and living in New York. And he goes, I'll give you 15 grand if I can stay with you for two weeks. And I said, come on over, man. Because that was like three months of rent. That's amazing. Did he actually live with you? He stayed with me for two weeks. But here's the problem. I was really busy because I was a stinking lawyer. Yeah, you're a lawyer. So I called one of my friends and I said, can you teach this guy some of the stuff that we're doing that we talk about in Ann Arbor back in the day? Can you teach this guy? He's staying with me. So I flew them out and then they ran this guy through the ringer for two weeks. And then I talked about that guy's experience on my show and people went, oh, I didn't know you were running a live residential program. And I went, yeah, I guess we are. <laughs> so then we had people in there every week. And I basically hired my buddy to just train and create a curriculum based on what we had been doing. Wow. And that became my business for 11 years. So wait a second. So only with guys, no girls? No. What I found was to train women, it was a completely different game. And also, frankly, to train guys, it was like, you're going to sleep on the floor. There's going to be five other guys in the room. We have right. one bathroom and you're going to have to pay eight grand. And they were like, great. And then with women, we tried to do it with women. And they were like, I want my own room. I can't share. And I, my budget is two grand because I don't want to spend more money on this because they they weren't willing to invest in the same at the same level. Guys were like, if this is going to fix this issue, right. no dollar amount is too high. Women were like, yeah, I'm not interested in, in doing that. And granted, it was probably a matter of marketing perception, but it was really easy for us to train guys because they didn't care about the facilities at all. Wow. They just didn't care. So what would you say even now? Like, what were the top takeaways? Besides, like, not the generic takeaways, like looking people in the eye no, and, yeah. and shaking their hand. What would you say, like, some good, like, nuggets, takeaways that other people can, like, utilize today? Even today, because these are all very transferable. Sure. Yeah, you know, of course. Characters you can use in any in any in any area of life. To be clear, by the way, it wasn't that the guys didn't care about what we were teaching. It was that they didn't care if they had to sleep on a no, couch. No, I know they, they didn't cared care about, about the, the results, right, and right, the results right. were what we were good at. We weren't good at like making sure your room smelled nice. Absolutely, um, <laughs> yes. that was not. I'm still not good at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. So, the skills that we were teaching were things like how to remember to have open, upright, positive, confident like body language, vocal tonality, eye contact, the way you sit, stand, walk, and talk had to all be aligned. You also had to be able to withstand a little bit of pressure, social pressure. So we would run guys through the ringer on that. Like we would get them on videotape. We would videotape them 
in in interactions with people. We had like hookups at our friend's bar where we'd be able to essentially like install cameras, reality TV show style. Right. And we'd be like, they'd go, yeah, I went in there and I did this and I did that. And we're like, great, let's go to the videotape. And it's like not what happened at all. So they have this very real experience of us breaking down their body language, vocal tonality, and eye contact in real time on tape. Tape doesn't lie. So we would be able to run these classes and have guys look at themselves and go, oh, I am like slouching and tense. And oh, yeah, when this person did this thing to me, I did shrink up like a little violet and then like sulk in the corner. Or like I walked in, I was all fun and friendly. And it's like, here's you walking in, going in, getting a drink, retreating to the corner and hiding in the bathroom for like 20 minutes. And they're like, oh. So we could do that and show people that we could pretty much highlight all of these flawed communication methods, flawed body language, flawed everything. We could point it out, deconstruct it, give them new tools, send them out and do it all over again. So that was very much so. I mean, if you're going to a bar, you're basically getting these guys to pick up on girls, right? Yeah. But that same, those are the same body language or mechanisms that you can take on like for business or for whatever, right? Sure. It's all, it's so, all very similar. It's all, so you can transfer it. So, okay. So besides body, like, okay, besides body language, besides look, you know, the, the basics, give me one really good one that people just wouldn't think about that really kind of like turn someone on or off. Yeah, sure. So a lot of it has nothing to do with the way that you act in the moment. A lot of it has to do with the status that you bring to a given interaction. So what we would say is don't go into like some club or bar on a Friday night and be like, hey, I'm friendly with everyone. I'm going to chat up the staff. It doesn't work. The best thing you can do is go in to the same place all the time on like a Tuesday when it's dead. Say it's a bar Mm -hmm. in your local area. Go in on a Tuesday and then meet the staff, greet them, know who they are. Then when you go there on a busy night, they know you. And then you're getting served right away. And they're, they're like, don't worry. This first drink is on me. It's all good. And you, if you can't get in, the doorman's like, oh, you're with Jordan? That's fine. Come on in, guys. And then everybody else has to wait. And it's like, who is this person? Right? So that builds status. Right. It doesn't have to be something superficial like, I can get into this bar on a Friday. Who cares about that, right? Yeah, you you care when you're 25. When you're 35, it's a little sad. But you can still build status in certain environments. And that's what, you know, we're training people to do. So instead of, to bring this to sort of a business example, a real world example, one thing I do every single day is around 10 a.m., I go into my phone and I go into the text messaging app and I scroll all the way to the bottom of the app. Those are where like those old interactions are that you, you person Mm -hmm. you had lunch with two years ago, you never followed up. Yeah. I re-engage four or five of those people every single day. And... Over the course of five days, it might do it six days a week, I'm re-engaging like 30 people. So my network is really, really broad. And I also give a lot without the expectation of getting anything in return. So if I know that somebody needs help with something, I will just help them by introducing them to someone else in my network, which is gigantic because of these re-engagement techniques and because I help all these other people and make myself known in these different niches. Mm -hmm. So if somebody needs something, my level of status is automatically much higher because I'm able to help so many people at scale. So that's that's the grown-up, non-pathetic equivalent of being able to get into <laughs> this really fancy bar or club when other people can't. Because I can call somebody who's supposed to be high status or a celebrity, and they're like, hey, Jordan, what's going on? I'm glad to help you. And I'll be like, hey, I've got a buddy that is really interested in this. Do you have any idea how you might be able to help? And they're like, a friend of yours is a friend of mine. And the, the people are like, what? How did that happen? The answer is giving all the time without the expectation of anything in return, making that a practice that I do every day, 
not being a jerk, like this person owes me one, really, really giving all the time, making sure that people are constantly being re-engaged from text, email, things like that, and connecting other people with other people inside my network so that I'm giving benefit to all those people all the time. That is a real world technique. Anybody can do it. It takes like four to five minutes per day. And anybody who doesn't do that, either who doesn't know about it, which is fair, or is just kind of being lazy. And I get a lot of people who listen to the Jordan Harbinger show and they're like, oh, I'm really busy. I'm like in classes right now. The truth is people think they can leverage relationships when they need them, but it's too late. You need, you need to dig the well before you're thirsty, as Harvey McKay and all those like networking self-help guys say. You, you can't make up for lost time with this. And a lot of people are like, I'm busy. I'm a full-time grad student in science. I don't have time to network. Cool. Call me when you're looking for a job and you're like, why doesn't anybody answer me? Why my resume? I've sent it out a hundred times. No one cares about you because you've been invisible, self-absorbed the whole time. I think that is, ex that is so true. Everything you just said is perfect. I, I agree with that a thousand percent. And you're like that. I, I'm going to say that. You're, you're like a super helpful person. I met you one time on the phone. I, this is a long time ago. Obviously, yeah, we're not, friends. Not today. Friends yeah. <laughs> but I met you one time on the phone and you were like, oh, I'm going to hook you up with this. I'm going to hook you up with that. And I remember hanging up and going, she's either really, really cool and nice or totally full of shit. Right. And which one is it? It was cool and nice. Okay, obviously. thank you. Obviously. But you've backed up a lot of what you've done. Most people who talk like that are really giving. It's so rare to find someone like that that I just thank don't you. even... I don't even believe it anymore until I see it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I actually pride myself on that because I, like you, I can't stand people who are full of shit and they have yeah. empty, empty promises. If I say something, I'm going to actually follow through with it because I don't want to be that person. But I could not agree with you more. I think everything you just said is so important to success in life with anything and everything. And it's like, there's a book called Atomic Habits. Have you read that book? I have. I had James Clear on my show. Really good guy. Oh, good okay. book. I want to have that guy on my show too. I thought the book was No great. problem. Can <laughs> make that happen for Could you. you make that happen sure. for me? Do you promise? I do. All right. So don't be full of shit. You got to make that that's, intro. That's another thing, actually. Good point. You have to follow through on what you say. It's better to not offer than to offer and then not do. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. It makes perfect sense because that's what I, I, I just said it, first of all. Yeah. I agree. I think it's... The wor I think it's a terrible trait in general. It just, it says a lot about the person's character when people just talk empty shit and do nothing with it. That's a good point. I, I guess the truth is people feel good in the moment. And if you're the person oh. who's like, oh, but sometimes I just forget, get a Todoist app on your phone and write it down. Absolutely. I'm, I'm the type of person who always forgets. So I have Todoist on you my do. phone and I go, hold on. I'll be in the middle of a conversation. I'll be like, wait, writing down intro gen to the microphone sales guy. Boom. Done. Right. And then if I don't remember what the hell that note was, I will literally text you and go, wait, I wrote this down. What did that mean? And you're like, oh, I needed the intro to the microphone guy, Brandon. And I'm like, right. And I do it right then. That's another thing. Do it immediately, yeah. like in the moment, in the middle of the conversation or the same day or the very next day. Because first of all, everybody wants instant gratification. Right. Two, there's something really crappy about being like, hey, can I get that intro? And you're like, yeah. And then... I get another note that's like, hey, I'm traveling. Can I do it next month when I'm back from Bali? It's an email introduction. Do it now. Why am I waiting for you? I could have asked somebody else. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. Does it, like in today's time, does it matter if you're in Bali or in, in like Guadalajara? Yeah, It doesn't matter. You can, make, you can write an email anywhere around the world. I, I hate when people use that as an excuse. Yeah. And the problem is because most people don't want to overextend themselves. They want to be takers and they're not, and they're not givers. And with, to your point, it's always better... To, to give because without the expectation right. and like to feed that well, like you said, because 
Yeah, you can help 99 people, or if you help 100 people and 99 of them never help you, right. it doesn't really matter if it doesn't cost you anything. Like, if you just made right. a bunch of email intros, your reputation's really good, you've helped a bunch of other people, that's something you can get later, or you just have a sterling reputation. The one person that does help you is the one you would never, you would never see it coming. I always say that, because I think I, I meet all these, like, super powerful people, right? And, like, all the time, I'm sure you do too, right? And they all are so, like, oh, you should be doing this, I should, you should connect with this, da, 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 da. If I, if I had a nickel for every time someone said that to me, mm -hmm. I would be, you know, I would be a multi-billionaire sure. with like a million different things happening with me. But no, but usually it's like the people that you least expect and that you kind of have to be the driver of your own success, right? Like you got to kind of create your own destiny, I think, in some, to some extent. Of course. Right? And it's a, num it's a numbers it's game, It's a numbers though. game. It's like rolling Volume. the dice over and over and over. There's a lot of examples of me helping some supposedly random person right. and then five years later they're like hey i'm working for this big media company now right we're looking for people who are doing this and i thought of you and i'm like who is this guy again and then i search my gmail and it's like right. this per case here's a real life example of this okay i got a call from my old neighbor from back in law school and he said hey my buddy's moving to uh, la would you mind talking with him about what it's like in Hollywood? And I was like, sure, I guess, whatever. So this guy calls me. I have a conversation with him. It's like half an hour long. Tell him where it's too dangerous to live. Tell him where to get good tacos. Like the end, right? Not where a big deal. I'll tell you off. <laughs> I don't want everybody at my taco spot. So then years later, I'm getting an email that's like, hey, this network is looking for new shows. And we were wondering if you wanted to join our network. And I thought, Sure. How did you find out about me? And he goes, oh, it's Sean. I'm the guy that called you four or five years ago when I was moving to LA and you, you know, you were neighbors with so-and-so. And I was like, wow, that came back out of absolutely wow. nowhere. Because you're top of mind with a lot of these people you've helped for a million years ago. I didn't think that guy was even going to move to LA. I thought there's no way. It's just one of these pipe dream guys. Right, right, right. Who's thinking about moving out here. And uh, another example of this very similar phenomenon, this guy actually helped me find a dentist because I had a toothache. This is pre-Uber. I couldn't get to the dentist. This is like eight years ago. And he helped me find a dentist. It was his aunt. And then when I asked him what he needed, he's like, well, I'm a graphic designer. And I was like, I don't need any graphic design, but I'll, I'll take your portfolio. A friend of mine four days later asked for a design portfolio from people. And I said, look, I've never worked with this guy, but whatever. Right. He was a barista at the time. She hired him full time. He makes like 80 grand a year now doing graphic design for all of her clients. Oh, wow. And the reason is because he helped me find this dentist on Facebook. Like I don't know him. I've never met him right, right, in person right. ever. Right, but you're, but you're, but you're just over, you're extending yourself with no, no, like you're not ex with no expectations of what's in return. And that's when. And he did the same thing. And that I, I call this the opportunities are sort of over the horizon. Because if you're trying to go, all right, I want to help this person, but I don't know what they can do for me. And if that affects your decision whether or not to help mm -hmm. them you're going to lose because most of the opportunities are over the horizon. You can't see them. Not, neither of you can. So if someone's like, hey, I make wooden coasters, and I'm like, I don't need wooden coasters. So I'm not going to make, I'm not going to go out of my way to help this person. Uh, yeah. That's a problem because if you help the wooden coaster person without the attachment to anything in return, and then five years later, you're like, oh, I really need a set built. It's like, yeah, I know this guy who makes wooden coasters and wooden furniture, and they're really, it's really awesome. And you go, wait, I know that guy. Hey, Ben, I'm looking for a custom wood set for my new podcast. Can, is that something you can do? Yes, and I'll do it at cost because you're the guy that helped me break into this industry. Right. Those types of opportunities happen all the time. 
I end up getting really hooked up from people and I'm like, wow, you're so nice. And they're like, no, you're so nice because years ago you introduced me to my wife or my business partner, or you got me an in with this person and you forget about it. Yeah. You have to do this. You can't make the calculation in the moment. What is this person going to do for me? First of all, imagine doing this in real time. Imagine you're at a party and you're talking with someone and they're like, yeah, I'm, I make furniture out of recycled plastic bottles. You're like, crap, I don't need that. Who else is here? And you're looking around and they're like, oh, you're kind of a bigger, better deal kind of person. I don't like you. Right. And then that way you're looking for the one in a hundred or one in 200 people because you're like, oh, I'm only looking for people that know celebrities from my show. So next, you're never going to have good luck with the people that you meet. But if I'm like, oh, you make recycled bottle furniture? That's interesting. Who in my network would need or want something like that? Or what do you need that I could provide via someone in my network? That's what makes it scalable. Yeah, I Pe agree. People think, I don't have time to help all these people. Yes, you do. You're not doing work for them. I'm not marketing wooden coasters for them. I'm just making a connection to somebody else in my network. Yeah. So the more people you know, the easier it is to find a match. I think there's two things to that. I, I agree. And like, you can't be so myopic in that thinking. I also think for people who are more... Um, short-sighted, think about, think of it as another way to connect to a, a contact of yours, right? Mm -hmm. Like it gives you a reason or an excuse to reach out to someone maybe you haven't spoken to in a while. In a, while. a lot of times when people ask me for a favor, I, people are like, well, why would you waste that favor with that person when you, you know, and I never look at it like that. No, I, it's, it's a muscle that grows with use. It's not a pie that you use. A, absolutely. And I think people are like, well, why? because people always say like I, an example would be like someone wanted concert tickets, you know, someone um, who works with me and um, the, by, someone I know represents that person. Mm -hmm. So they're like, and I, and I, I wanted to ask them like, well, someone says to me, well, why would you waste that favor? on that person. You should be, you know, blah, blah. I'm like, cause I don't think of it that way. Like number yeah. one, like if you think, if you're always conniving and trying to think of, figure out a way just to help yourself, I think it's like very short sighted. And, and also you got to think a little bit more positively, like how that, that gives you another reason to kind of reach out and like say hello to someone maybe you haven't spoken to, I guess. It's the only time that there's an exception to this is if the, if there's a taker that is not interested in ever helping anyone. But like if, a friend of a friend right. needed concert tickets, and I was like, all right, this is kind of a big deal for them. I'm going to ask my friend Jen if she knows this person because you know everyone. You're like, <laughs> yeah. So I get the tickets for this random person. No big deal. That person is going to be super thankful. The only time I would draw a boundary is if they're like, great. Now, anytime I want to go to a concert, I'm going to call Jordan and ask him to call his friend Jen and get me free tickets because I'm a cheap ass and I don't want to buy anything. <laughs> right, right, right. That's, that's something else. But if that person is like, you made my daughter's birthday amazing. I can't believe she got to go see uh, Britney's whatever. Rihanna, whoever Rihanna, it is. Yeah. From your friend. That's amazing. And I go, great. If she's ever looking for something else, I'm going to call you. This person will, as by virtue of being a good person that is thankful, will say, if there's ever anything I can do for you, let me know. Chances are there's never going to be anything that person can do. But when you connect with other connectors, then it's like, well, all right, this person's a car dealer. Maybe I don't need a discount on a car, but maybe they know somebody who runs some other kind of thing. You just uh, don't know. The opportunities are over the freaking horizon. Exactly. And this is a person, uh, to your point, it wasn't someone who had the ability to get those tickets, right? Like I was right. helping someone who I clearly knew didn't have the access that I had. Tapping that right? table. Sorry, I'm sorry to tap I'm that table. the table, man. Um, I didn't want to, like, but to help someone who doesn't have the access, I think it comes back to you tenfold because mm -hmm. that's the point. Like you're right. It wasn't someone who just like is always a table. Acre, 100%. So then 
How did you, so what's interesting, and you're telling me this like off of this podcast, but sure. I wanted to touch upon it because I think it's super cool, that you took all of those skills that you, and, and that you taught men or helped people to transfer to business. It's the same skills that you can hone to anything now that you're doing it with special forces and you're kind of telling me about it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I want I, you to kind of talk about so it. So now we're training police, special forces, intelligence agencies, and sometimes civilians on relationship development, threat assessment, nonverbal communication, because essentially what intelligence agents do, it's not always like dropping a bug while you're being, you know, right, right, right. suspended among uh, above a floor. Most, in fact, it's never that. It's it, mostly <laughs> developing relationships with people where they like and trust you so much that they're willing to give you information. And a lot of, especially counterintelligence is a lot like that. Uh, a lot of the counterintelligence right. people that we're training it's all about rapport, doing what you say you're going to do, generating no like and trust relationships with people that you then say, hey, look, I can, I can get your family out of North Korea, Russia, Iran, whatever, but you, you, know, you, you need to build trust. You don't just call someone and go, hey, I heard you're an Iranian nuclear scientist. How would you like a visa to come to the United States? It's a great way to get yourself killed if you're that nuclear 100%. scientist. You have to develop this relationship slowly over time. Those people specialize in that. But a 1% edge from somebody like us could be life-saving. Who's us? Me and my co-trainers. Okay, yeah, so you have, how are, many people do you have working for you? I've, they don't work for me. They work with, with me. With you. But we have retired KGB. We have retired military intelligence and some active people in those fields as well. Obviously not KGB. So, yeah, well, okay. So let me get this straight. Okay, so you then have like a sub-business, right? Where you, could you say something about like your, you're like, what you're training people to watch for like deception and and things like that right sure so is it only based on the stuff that you were taught and kind of learned 12 years ago and not kind of only. just honed no no it's not only that there's more okay. i mean it, for example if okay. i'm teaching guys how to if i'm 25 back then i'm teaching guys how to go out and meet women no but you've obviously like yeah. honed those skills oh sure or something yeah. and you've honed those skills and now you're taking those those raw skills, and then you're transferring it into a whole different area of business. Yeah, a much more interesting and wholesome area as well. Well, a wholesome area. It seems yeah, like a very, wholesome. it's very wholesome. It seems super intense though. And I, who, how, how do they reach out to you? Like this is like hardcore shit, I would think, right? Like, it is, yeah. The way that they find out about us is, honestly, the podcast helps a lot because people who listen to the Jordan Harbinger show, often they'll take a one to 5% edge there's a lot of deployed military. There's a lot of intelligence agents that are like, oh, this is a what good interview. To, what do you mean by that? So if I'm a counterintelligence specialist or a Green Beret and I'm stationed in Iraq, Afghanistan, okay. wherever, I'm not thinking, gee, I don't know what I'm doing. You have millions of dollars worth of training from the military. Right. But you could get maybe a 1% edge by listening to a bunch of podcasts like The Jordan Harbinger Show, reading books on persuasion, reading books on influence, reading books on generating trust and rapport. So you go and you do that because what if the difference between success and failure in your job, which by the way could kill you, right. is that 1% edge. That's like Atomic Habits talks about that 1%, yeah. right? Sure. So that's what you're saying. So you're saying if they're listening to all these podcasts and generating all this like media information, if they get one thing they can get better at kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, people who are going to go and be a top tier military operator, intelligence professional or work in the civilian mm -hmm. version of those worlds. These aren't people that are like, how do I get a C plus on this exam so no. I can graduate? These are people that care about every single advantage they can possibly get. These are true high performers. 
These are people that would be in the business world an absolute rock star, but have decided to actually serve the country instead, which is very admirable. And so what we find is these people, they don't stop learning because they graduated from the farm at the CIA. They don't stop learning because right. they made it through their Shin Bet training in, in Israel and they're done, right? These are people that are obsessed with human performance, especially their own. And so they're going to look for something like the Jordan Harbinger show and go, okay, this guy talks to high performers. This person is going to identify habits, skills right. that I can then use. And so when we talk about the training that we offer on the show, to the extent that we're even allowed to talk about this stuff and offer it, then they go, hey, how do I get that for my unit? And they either go through their channels or they reach out to us directly. And a lot of them have discretionary income that they can use. So right. and in police departments, of course... Cops are listening to stuff like what we're doing all the time, and they'll go, oh, we want a threat assessment class for our officers. How do we do that? We want an interrogation class for our officers. How do we go and get that? And so they'll reach out to me knowing that I know those people and that we offer that in-house as well, and they'll hire our company to go and train them. Wow. So tell me some like cute, some cool things that you've done or where you've, got, where you've been mm. that would be... Like kind of like things that you would never think in a million years that you would ever have access to that you would that you got to do. Yeah, let me think about what. Don't think too long. Usually, you have to ask permission before anything like this. Some of the some of the cool classes that we've taught had people from elite military units that are in under certain type of cover, and we find out later. Usually, we can sort of tell that something doesn't add up. Like we had these guys that came in; they sold farm equipment. And they had all been stationed in Ukraine for a really long time. Wow. So that sort of was weird. And they were all in excellent shape. They were extremely intelligent. Not that people who sell farming implements and equipment <laughs> couldn't be extremely intelligent. But it just, there was a lot of telltale signs that these were special operators. And of course, years later, I was like, so, are you, we stayed friends. I was like, so are you guys going to tell me what you really do now or what? And they're like, yeah, we're all sort of done with that particular thing. We're all, we're all on SEAL Team 6, and we were training for these missions, and we wanted to come in and get some specialized training in this area. And what area? What was that that you did with those people specifically? A lot of nonverbal communication, body language, deception, training, or counter-deception, and rapport-building skills. Okay, so how do you know when someone's deceiving you? This is a huge... I know, just give me, Huge I know it's like we could do a whole podcast on that. The, yeah, the problem with giving like a one quick tip is that it... One quick tip. The, the point is that you take tells for deception you measure them against a baseline and you can't just be like if someone touches their face it means that they're lying it that could mean a whole host of different things arms crossed people go this, this is a favorite yeah, yeah, yeah. oh their arms are crossed they're closed off to what you're saying well not necessarily could be cold also yeah. this combined with a head tilt is actually curiosity it's not closed body language there's all kinds of things and so my co-trainer chase he's got this periodic table of the elements it's called right. the behavioral table of the elements and it's all these different human behaviors and they're combined together in certain ways that indicate deception you add them up you get a score and it's pretty good but you can't be like oh they scratch their nose or oh they keep playing with their hair this is deception we're under lights we're on camera that adds a whole different context plus some people are naturally a little bit more anxious than others their baseline could look like they're lying if you just take that without any right. context. Right, that's so true. So like right now, I have an itch on my head. Does that mean that what I just said was false? No, and it means that I have an itch on my head because we're sweating <laughs> under lights. That's all that that means. But if I have a lot of other signals put together and my baseline, as you know it, as you'd measured it before, doesn't show those same signals, now you have a good idea that maybe I'm de being deceptive, right? So if my baseline is, wow, Jordan's really relaxed, he looks people in the eye, 
His hands are usually in his lap. They're usually folded. His lower body's really relaxed. Everything is normal. And then suddenly when you're asking me questions, I'm shifting around a lot. I'm doing this. I'm scratching my face when I'm talking. I'm not meeting your gaze. Like these deception signals put together as measured against the baseline, that can indicate deception. But this stuff is more, it's more dangerous to have one little idea than it is to have none at all. Right, because then you get people who go, oh, I I saw on TV that if your arms are crossed, you're closed off to my ideas. Complete BS. This is sort of pop psychology garbage that people read in some self-help book or heard on a podcast, and they're like, (laughs) I'm using that now against my kid. It just does not work. Right. We know that most, even lie detectors, literal polygraph tests, Done by run by an expert, they're about fifty one percent accurate. Think about that. That's it. That's it. They're about fifty one percent accurate. So does that mean that all these people would have to have a baseline of all the other people to even actually properly read them? One hundred percent true. Yeah. So how would anybody then? Because how is that even possible? Right? That means no. What it means is, and this is controversial to people that think they're really good at seeing if other people are lying. Mm-hmm. Humans who are supposedly experts at detecting deception. Without there, there's a couple of exceptions to this rule. Usually are no better than chance and are often worse than chance because they think they know what to look for, but they're just taking two or three things out of context and deciding that that makes them an expert at deception or detection. Right. So there are a couple of people that are really good at reading micro expressions, which are these little barely detectable, barely perceptible expressions of contempt, happiness, fear, whatever. There are some people that are naturally good at those. They still can't tell if someone's lying. They're just naturally really good at seeing micro expressions. That's all that that means. So they might be able to tell if you're afraid and you're hiding it, or if you're happy and you're hiding it, or if you don't like me because you have a contempt expression and you're hiding it. That's pretty much as far as it goes. But people like to go, ooh, I can read micro expressions because I took an online class. Ooh, that was a contempt expression right there. And then the rest of the, the details, they get filled in by their brain. Huh, why did she feel contempt? She must not like me. Why doesn't she like me? Oh, it's probably because I was late to this interview. Jen hates me. That is an erroneous conclusion based on just enough information to make me dangerous. So yeah. a lot of what we're teaching when we teach deception detection is we're unteaching, we're trying to get people to unlearn all these things they think they know as interrogators, parents, police, whatever, that are actually just misleading. It's amazing. It's so this to me is so fascinating. You could I, I you could do a whole other podcast, ten other podcasts mm. just on this. Would you come back and just talk about that? Actually, we can. I got people who work with me that are going to be a million times better. At but that, this. that stuff is super interesting to me. And I think the issue is also now with social media. Anyone could be deceptive because you can just put out a persona sure. and just. People don't get to see those nuances, right? They, they see these big blocks of what people want you to see, but don't see everything else. So can, how do you, like, how can you detect with that? Is there, like, you did that thing I told you I wanted to talk to you about that, DEF CON, about that, what's that thing? The right, whole, so that was, social engineering is essentially the practice yeah. of convincing other people of, I, I'm, this is a terrible definition, but social engineering is essentially convincing other people that you're someone else in order to, it's like hacking humans, right? So yeah. when I do social engineering, I used to do this, this is a past life entirely, but I would get hired to say, talk my way into an Amazon warehouse, oh, shoot, <laughs> past life, don't do it anymore. I get, I get, yeah, don't hire me if you want to keep a secret, yeah. only if you want to find out if someone else is. I would get uh, hired to sort of talk my way into say like an Amazon warehouse and get a hold not of an Amazon something. Or a non-Amazon warehouse, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's not a client anymore. And I would have to get a hold of a certain hard drive. The hard drive is obviously going to be more or less blank, or it's going to be a real one 
that I have the person take out. I will literally walk into a place, wow. have the person take that out of a machine and give it to me. And then if I get caught by security, I've got a letter from like Jeff Bezos' homeboy that says this is, you know, who's the security guy that says like this is something that we're testing, you know, based on our agreement, blah, blah, blah. But we had uh, another guy who worked with my company literally would go, all right, he'd hired by the board of a company to go and test their security. And one of the attacks was this. And I don't think I'm giving away something that's, that's uh, too novel or new. The, the beauty of this is you can tell people exactly what you're going to do and it'll still work. So one of the things that our company did back in the day, we were supposed to get private information from this company. This is like a accounting and IT kind of software company. Okay. And, and this is years ago. We drove by, we saw the brand of, and we drove by the company's HQ. We looked at their dumpsters. All right, we couldn't exactly see that far. And we said, look, we're here to fix the dumpster. And the guy said, I can't let you in without an appointment. No problem. So we went online. We found out who the vendor was for those dumpsters. We made polo shirts and hats online. We had them overnighted or two-day, whatever, print air. We had them sent to us. We called ahead to make an appointment to come see those dumpsters. Security said, sure, just bring your ID. No problem. Printed up some IDs that said we worked for the waste management company. Showed up, gave them our IDs that we had made. We're wearing uniforms that we had printed. All we want to do is go see the dumpster. The guy doesn't just wave us in. That would be too easy. He goes, sure, no problem. We pull in with our truck and we say, all right, there's a wheel busted on one of these things. This is going to be a while. I'm actually going to get in here because some of the mechanism for the wheel is in here. Can you show me which ones have food waste? I don't want to be covered in gross stuff. And he goes, paper, shredded, stuff to be shredded, other waste. I go, great. Okay, cool. I'm going to inspect all these. So we start looking around with flashlights in the food waste dumpster from the outside. And I, of course, the one that's to be shredded, I go, ah, yeah, here we go. Hold on. I'm going in here. Can you pull the truck up? Great. And we go, hey, look, uh, I don't know if you're supposed to be away from your post for a while. We're going to need about 30 to 45 minutes. Do you want us to just wave when we come out so you can open the gate? He goes, yeah, that's fine. We load the truck with documents that are in the to be shredded dumpster because we have to move them to fix the wheel, right? We take off after a while. And we, he waves us out the gate after we get, you know, we have to get apart. We had to Amazing. fix the wheel. We did the rest. We go in for the meeting and the board's like, what do you got? Thinking like we found an unlocked door. We're like, here's your payroll for the entire C-suite. Do you want us to show you what each of you make? And they were like, nope, we're good here. We need a <laughs> full security audit. And they're like, who do we need to fire? And we're like, no, nobody. Everybody did their job perfectly. And it's like, wait, what? How did security let you in? Well, we had ID, we had uniforms. Here's the problem. It's not your security guy. It's the fact that this stuff works on everyone. And so, of course, we outline security protocols that are not the security guy's fault. We outline full protocols that are like something that you can't just defeat with a couple of phone calls. And this is stuff I used to do as a kid. I mean, when I was young, I used to talk my way into all kinds of stuff. I, I, I never paid for a concert because I used to go and talk my way in backstage with tickets I printed off on a laser printer or an ID that I made. And I would go and hang out with like the staff at, it used to be called Pine Knob back in Detroit. Now it's like DTE Music Theater. And I would just walk in to these concerts. I saw the Beastie Boys, everybody. By just printing out tickets that look like. I would either print out tickets and go. And then once they figured out that it was barcodes, we figured out how to make barcodes. How, how would they, how would they um, you know, work the barcodes like how would they go click you know to get in you either get a real barcode or you figure out what barcode system they use and you find out which there's either default barcodes there's maintenance barcodes 
there are barcodes that tell the system that there's an error. And of course, there's a huge line behind you. Right. So this might so get you out of there. You fast. go, hey, I don't know what's going on. And they're like, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, look, you're sitting here with a freaking ticket, of course. Like, go ahead. Or if you've got a maintenance ID, you go really early. And you're like, hey, look, you know, I'm here for this. You talk your way in. I remember there was one time where my friends thought that I was BSing. This, I was probably like 21 at the time. It was my first time in L.A., and uh, I won't tell the name of the club because it's actually still there. I think I was probably actually 24, 25 now that I think about it. You can, still, why would, you can say it. Who cares? Now? No, I don't want to because I, I used to go there all the time. Oh, okay. And honestly, the owner, I became friends with him through this activity. Oh, okay. And he's a really good guy and I just don't want to mess it up. Okay. Uh, or mess with him or make him look like a chump. Okay. But there was a huge line and my friend goes, this, this bar we're at sucks. I want to go to that club over there. But that line is huge. And I go to the front of the line and I go, hey, I work for this magazine. Da, 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 da. I need to get in. And they're like, yeah, right, dude. This is LA. Like, I haven't heard that BS before. Yeah. And you just push these psychological triggers that get people to essentially decide that you're more trouble than you're worth, right? And this is how social engineering works. It's how persuasion and influence worth, uh, work. And 45 minutes, maybe 45, 50 minutes, because this was like a personal record for me at the time. Now I just look at it as kind of like a crappy way that i stole tickets to this concert Amazing. so i feel a little bad but we ended up on the stage with the dj in under an hour with free drinks in our hand from not even being at the at the being at the ass end of a line okay what was the psychological things that you used on that guy so you go up to the ticket counter and you're like hey i'm here for a media event and they're like media event it's like yeah well we don't have that fine that's fine we came from germany to write for electronicscene.de which is a website that we had just essentially made from our phones while we were standing in that line figuring out what to do. It was just like a plug and play. This domain is parked. The emails worked, though. We set it up literally that fast. How? They, you can set things up like that so fast. So fast from your phone. If you Yeah, you just go to GoDaddy and you buy a domain. In five minutes? It would work in five minutes? I mean, in a few minutes, yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. You can set up email. Not a problem. Or you call a friend who's at a computer and you have them do it. And then... You, we, at the front of the line, they're like, look, we don't have that. I'm like, I just assume go home. I don't care. I don't want to write about this. What's your name? I just, I, well, why? Well, I don't want my editor to be like, why didn't you go? I need to be like Jan Janice. Janice told me I couldn't get in. And they're like, I'm not getting in trouble for this BS. Hold on. Let me get my manager. Mike, okay, hold on. Hold on, Mike. Hey, what are you here for? I'm here for a media event. I got to write about this. I know that so-and-so is playing tonight. I just want to come in, do my piece. I'll be out. Like, I don't care. What, what outlet is this? So you keep repeating this process. Well, look, I don't, Mike, if, I don't, if you don't want me to come in, I don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> I, just, I just need to be able to say that Michael said, we're sold out, we can't let anybody in, and that I went home. And they were like, no thanks, I'm not getting fired for this. So he's like, let me walk you in. So I go in and I'm like, great, is there a place where I can get a drink, use the restroom, uh, and take some notes? And they're like, uh, yeah, wherever. And I'm like, well, all right, can you just walk me up to the front? And they're like, uh, okay, fine, whatever. Because they're busy, right? It's a busy freaking exactly. concert. So they walk us past the door guy. We don't have tickets or wristbands. So I go, wait, uh, hold on a second. How do I get back out when I need to and get back in? And they're like, oh, you're going to need a wristband. I don't say, hey, I need a wristband, dude. Right, I go, right. how do I get back in and out? And they're like, oh, you need a wristband. So they give it. Then it becomes their idea. They give you the wristband. You go in and out. And I've done this at a billion raves, concerts, when I used to go to those things. And there are times, there are numerous times where it would be like me and my friends on stage with that DJ. I remember sitting in front of the DJ booth with Deadmau5 playing a show in New York City 
and sitting there and the owner walking up and going, do I know you? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. Cause I had no idea who he was. And he goes, this is my owner's table. And I go, thanks so much for having us. And he's like, cool uh yeah uh do you guys want anything to drink because he didn't want to be like who the hell are you right 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 because he's like obviously you're sitting at the owner's table my three levels of security let you in the sound guys let you in i must just not be no i just must not be in the loop and i want to look stupid or i don't know i don't look like a jerk yeah these guys were writing notes at the table so we ended up hanging out with them and after a while i was like hey full disclosure i just totally bs'd my way in here I can tell you how to fix that problem, but you're really cool and I love every venue. And after a while, he was like, it's fine. I'm kind of liking it. You don't tell him in the moment, obviously. obviously. But I remember going back again during like a really l- slow night and being like, look, I feel bad. I, I want to pay for these tickets. And he's like, wait, I'd rather hear how you did this. And that was how I got the idea right. that actually breaching security, as long as you're not stealing something or being an outright right. jerk, you, you can actually deliver more value if you tell them how to fix the problem. Because not everybody that walks into some place wants a free concert. Not everybody that steals the payroll from the C-suite just wants, just is a punk ass twenty-eight year old kid who needs the ego validation. Right, right. right? Somebody's going to misuse that. So if I can do that stuff and then turn it into a business, and I did for a while, that's much more rewarding. To you're me. like a natural hustler. I love it, and that's why we're friends. Because I feel like as you talk. Everything like resonates so well with me. I mean, first of all, though, I do believe what you're saying. There is a part of it is natural. You're innately like that. I think that you can teach people some of that by giving them those like fundamentals and like help practice a practice practice. But a lot of people don't have the confidence, which is what you teach. Yeah, but I developed that over time. I used to be an introverted kid. Uh, that's what I say. So because I would feel like you would have to be somewhat innately good at that like to push the envelope like that or have balls like that you know it's like sales though it's the reason sales is the easiest job to get and the hardest job to keep is because usually they'll hire anyone Mm -hmm. and they'll just see who's left at the end of the week Mm -hmm. and isn't crying Mm -hmm. and those are the people that like survival the fittest right they they, they're able to survive this yeah you can learn a sales skill set through your life from absolutely nothing you don't have to be a quote-unquote natural but the reason that we're able to teach military, special forces, intelligence agencies is because those agencies have already screened for people that have this ability. Right. We're, That's true. we're, we're honing it. Right. I'm not making somebody out of whole cloth that can do this. Right. I'm taking people that are already decent at it. You know, if I'm doing a, a breach for like a white hat social engineering attack on a company, I'm training the security company the head of security right. this guy's probably ex-military it's, it's gonna be like a Mossad agent that works at microsoft now he's not gonna be like some dude who's sitting in front of a computer that's like wow i guess we gotta lock the back doors like right. it's so somebody who gets already. it they get it they're just not thinking all day about how to break their own security they're not red teaming is what it's called right. their own company they have other things to do they hire weirdos like me and my friends to go and do that and I, the guys that i worked with were so good at this stuff i'm one time we had to break into uh, a warehouse. It's always a warehouse or a facility. (laughs) And there's these, they had a law in this area that fire doors had to be unlocked during business hours. I think most jurisdictions have that. But after hours, you can't just lock people in facilities, right? Right. Especially if there's 24-hour security. So there has to be, usually there's a motion detector that will unlock a door from the inside or there's a button you push that unlocks the door from the inside. But if the weather stripping under the door has enough room, you can stick something in there. So we spent a lot of time like sticking things under doors, hitting buttons, and then motion detectors and things like that. And one time 
we went to this warehouse and we could not trigger the motion detector. So we went to the only one of the only places besides Walmart that's open really late. We went to a the porn store and we got an inflatable doll and we shoved it under the door and we inflated this rubbery inflatable you know what doll sex <laughs> doll and this person shaped thing inflates under the door and triggers the motion detector we open the door and we walk in and the videotape of this is absolutely priceless we wanted to keep the footage but it's not ours to keep oh we my couldn't. god because i we were like we looked at each other after that attack and we we're like this is one of those moments in your career where you just go, I can't believe this is my job. And also, if there's a highlight reel for like social engineers or like white hat, red team uh, breachers, this wow. is going to be in it. That's amazing. All of it. Okay, first, you're super fascinating. You're much more than just a podcast interview guy. You know that, right? Yeah, I've had several careers. I just enjoy interviewing now because it's uh, it keeps me inside on cold days. Oh, well, listen, I, you're like... I can go on and on with you. I know you have something to do, so that's why I'm stopping you because I don't want you to get mad at me that I kept All you right. too long. Fair enough. But um, will you please come back and we can? T I know you say you got people who can do it, but that all this like, I guess like human hacking and behavioral stuff and just I think that stuff is super fascinating. And I don't even care if someone knows more. The way that you kind of explain it and and like how it like lands, I think is very like it's, it's it's interesting and it's like resonates so if you wouldn't mind of course i would love to all right good well thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me on thank, what do i do now do i just say goodbye and you say, say where can people find you and I've, i go the jordan harbinger show if you listen to podcasts i also have a youtube channel i put some of my interviews on youtube or you can follow me on instagram or twitter at jordan harbinger i would just say something like that something like that yeah that sounds great okay, okay. yeah okay yeah. Um, well, there, thanks. I'll know, for, I'll know for next time. You're welcome. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> okay. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.